10.47 p.m. on Sunday night. NACACON 2021 just came to an end a few hours ago. It was a blast. Guys, everybody listening, I've got to tell you, I had a lot of fun. It was a really good show. So let me go ahead and introduce myself. For those of you who don't know what this is, I am Mario the Artisan Rogue, and this is my podcast, Radio 74. It's a one-man show I do that talks about my life and my experiences as a creative, as an artist, as a traveling artist, and the things I go through, what I encounter, and what I learn. So, the first thing I want to start off with is, this show wasn't like previous ones. It is an anime convention. It happens in Overland Park, and it normally is one of my favorite shows, no matter what. I, In fact, I want to say that it's almost always. In fact, I can promise you it's my favorite show, and I'm not just saying that because I got done with it. I'm not just saying that because there could possibly be people, staff, whatever, from that show listening. I'm telling you that because out of all the shows I've done of this size, now, its normal draw is somewhere between seven to 9,000 people, and it happens now in a convention center that has a hotel nearby. I've talked about this show before. If you go to my website, theartisanrogue.com, you can see plenty of past show reviews complete with photos and my thoughts about all these other shows I've done. And NakaCon has always been one that has been a stellar standout for me. This year was no different, but the thing that did differentiate it was that there was an attendance cap now as we all know we're still living with covid with all of these other things that are keeping things kind of on edge okay and this is not the place i'm going to discuss either way about this i know that that has become a hot button issue for a lot of people for what it's worth in my part I know a lot of people that work in the health industry. I've had COVID, so I take it pretty seriously. And with that, I appreciated what NACACON was willing to do. They went out of their way to be able to provide safety measures. They told people wear masks, preferably two-ply, all of these things, right? They also normally have um, quite a few people in Artist Alley, and it's not even really an artist alley. It's just a section where they'll have the artists and then another section where they will have the vendors. And the vendor hall itself is a big square. And usually you get a booth that's, I think, about a 10 by 10 booth or an 8 by 8 booth, something like that. It's all pipe and drape. It's really nice, really upscale. I love it. So as long as you bring a table cover and whatever else you're going to sell, you're golden. Well, this year they decided to go ahead and put about a 6-foot walkway in between each one of the booths and they really reduced the number of people that were selling in the vendor room they also spread out tables and did a lot of other stuff and i think with the exception of maybe one or two people that i personally spoke to everybody else was in a really great mood really enjoyed it you know and even if they weren't somebody that would have been too happy about wearing a mask they still focused on the fact that the show was happening and it was fun and they were enjoying themselves. I think so many people that were in attendance, including myself, were happy that it was even happening. Let's go back again. And I had covered this prior. Let's go back to 2019. Okay. Because that was the last year that I did the show. When that show happened, of course, everyone's looking forward to 2020. Big plans are being drawn up. 2019 was a good success. Had a lot of great things going for it. You know, I remember doing okay at the show. 
you know, financially and emotionally and everything else like that. I was doing freaking wonderful. Well, as the show drew close to uh, happening in 2020, in fact, down to the day, I remember that there were, you know, a lot of vendors and artists en route to be coming down and Kansas City had decided to lock down. They were like, nope, not having it. Nothing's going to be happening. And Planet Comic Con, the big show here in town, was going to be calling it off. That's that's all there was to it. Well, Overland Park, where NakaCon happens, is not that far away. And next thing I know, that was what happened. I ended up getting an update and then a text message saying the show wasn't going through. I had my I had my truck packed. I had everything ready to go. I had like you name it. There was so many things now. And I think that's what made it really kind of oddly disjointed when I had opened up. I have this big cargo bin, this big plastic cargo bin. I could probably curl up in fetal position and sit in it myself. It carries all of my stuff, all of my art reproductions, all the things I used to assemble my booth. Just a bunch of things in there, right? And uh, that was loaded up. All this other stuff was ready to go. But whenever I finally opened it up and started looking through it and getting ready to print more art reproductions and, you know, just kind of go through my stuff and clean it out, it was a little bittersweet because I remember it was kind of like a time capsule that it just I never got a chance to use it in 2020. I just sort of sat on it until recently when I was trying to, you know, add more artwork in and and kind of clean it out. And so when 2021 finally rolled around, you know, there's a bit of apprehension, a little bit of fear, and everyone's on edge to some degree. But I think the vast majority of us were in really, really good, you know, spirits about doing the show again. And something that I remember was I kept telling myself, you know what, for better or for worse, just play it safe, be careful, and just go and try and enjoy the show and support the show. Because in my own head, I'm thinking there's a lot of shows that didn't make it. Recently in the news, as far as comic shows are concerned, and this also goes for a lot of art shows that are happening, like the kind like the Plaza Art Fair and, um, you know, any of these street fairs that you see out there. There's a lot of them that in the last year and a half have disappeared. They relied on year to year income to keep their staff, their volunteers, everything else like that, marketing, all of that going. And a lot of them probably had shows that were ready to go. They had rented out stuff. Sometimes they didn't get refunds or whatever. And when that falls by the wayside, suddenly you're left holding the bag. And there's there's just not a lot you can do about it. And it's it's sort of terrifying because when when you're left with that absolution, there's nowhere to go but down in that case. I mean, if you manage to survive it, hopefully you'll surface again. And that's exactly what happened with NakaCon. Now, I did like the fact that they were being very proactive. There was a booth set up on the far end. In fact, almost directly across from me, but three booths forward from me that was selling a lot of shirt designs and other stuff from that was supposed to be sold at 2020 show. And they did try to have a a virtual convention. I don't know how successful it was. I remember taking a look at it and I thought it was really pretty cool. But let's be honest, at least in my opinion, um, virtual cons can be a good thing and they're a good adenum to any respectful show these days. And I like it because sometimes there are people that maybe have anxiety or just no way to, you know, be able to participate in a show. And if they want to be able to see vendors or do something like that, um, I can see where it's definitely 
just a nice bonus to have. And I so far have been part of two shows that had virtual convention halls and they were really pretty cool. And I think we're right on the cusp of seeing something turn into it because, um, if I were to make a metaphor here, it's kind of like, you know, back when I was younger and you'd see something like the graphics on the Atari or on the Nintendo entertainment system or something like that, you were like, Oh my God, these are so immersive and they're so amazing because you know you could move your little 16 sprite sized character around and interact or in early 3d, you'd be like, Oh my God, this is mind blowing like Tomb Raider on the PlayStation. But then, you know, you look at things like Red Dead Redemption and stuff like that, and it's on a whole other level. I think we're really close to seeing that sort of interaction and capability happening for virtual cons. Any enterprising company worth their salt would look into this and go, you know, regardless if we have another pandemic happen or not, there is something here that could turn into some real money if you provide an engine that could be custom built for these different conventions to affordably create something in there and the sky's the limit. I mean, it's virtual, right? And if it's meant to round out a real event, man, suddenly it's kind of unlimited. How many people could be part of a show? How many people could present? How many people could sell to a certain degree, right? Anyway, I'm digressing. I'm sorry. So the whole thing with NakaCon this year was that I'm glad to say that Again, people were really happy to be there. I did pretty well. And I also really enjoyed the fact that I was able to reconnect with old friends, meet a lot of new people, and uh, pick up some really cool things. If you follow me on TikTok, at the Artisan Rogue, I showed off a few things on there and extended a lot of thanks to the people that did support me this year. This is by far one of the best earning shows I've done in a very long time, and I was ecstatic for it. Um the other thing, too, that came about was that as I did the show, you know, I was a little bit remiss only in this. And I didn't mean to make that rhyme. <laughs> I was thinking the entire time, like, what is the future of what we're going through right now? Now, I've gotten on different social media, I've gotten people that have responded back to some posts I've made. Um, some leaning more, not, I wouldn't say negative, but much more with a realistic hand in it. And then some with a much more hopeful definition of what they want. And I can completely respect and appreciate the whole spectrum of it because it's not that it's coming from any place of, you know, dishonesty or anger that I can necessarily see on either side, right? Or too much, you know, kind of, you know, head in the clouds kind of thinking. It's just that right now we are seeing a weird evolution of what comic, pop culture, whatever you want to call them, these shows, right? Because ultimately you can sit there and say, oh, well, this is, you know, I'll give you an example. For those of you that don't really know a lot about this sort of thing, just bear with me. I'll give you a quick explanation. Most of these shows, these things that if you watch The Big Bang Theory, you've seen a generalized version of this, right? But there is a lot of subgenre and, you know, areas that you can go into. You'll have things like Planet Comic Con, which are a fairly general pop culture event now. You have shows like what my buddy Craig Klotz puts on, which are excellent, small, very niche, but very well put together comic book shows, comic book creators and vendors that may sell comics and or toys. That is the root of the system, and those are amazing. You'll have anime conventions that also sort of bleed over into their own pop culture paraphernalia. And then you'll have other ones like 
Games Day for Games Workshop, which is built around miniatures, or TwitchCon, or any of these other shows that all sort of seem to bleed into one another. So you'll see elements of pop culture, generalized ones that you might see appearing at like Walmart or Target or something. Those sort of IPs and identities showing up at these things, big names like Electronic Arts, Sega, Nintendo, you know, Microsoft, Xbox, all of these sort of things sort of mitigate and can you know, be a presence in a lot of these places. We live in a really wonderful time because when I was growing up, this was not the norm. I mean, I, I, this is going to sound cliche, but growing up, if I didn't, if I didn't know where I was and who I was talking to, I would end up locked in a football locker. It just, you just didn't talk about stuff like that. And it sounds like that's a lie, but it's true. You know, I mean, and we live in a time now where, you know, enough nerds and geeks and people that are really huge into fandoms can actually get into arguments as some about dumbass stuff as myopic as like, you know, what sort of blaster pistol a stormtrooper may or may not have used in a fan film or an official canon or something like that. I mean, that is a real reality that we have. Now, the reason I'm saying all of that is because I truly believe we live in a wonderful time where... You have things coming to life and being retread and reissued and redone for better or for worse, right? And the same can be said about these shows. You can go to a show now that will happen in any given town, and I'll give you a good example. If you go to NakaCon, you'll find a handful of artists that do wonderful fan art recreations of uh, popular characters from Fire Emblem, from Super Mario Brothers, whatever. You'll find there was one artist there that was doing amazing pixel art, and it was done with plastic squares. Incredible stuff. Um, you have my stuff, which is very inspired by Samurai Jack and has a very animation look to it. Uh, the people next to me had a very whimsical, beautiful style, and they did everything from, like, She-Ra fan art to, like, um, different animals and stuff. It was just really nice. And then there was one fellow there that had mind-blowingly great cyberpunk and science fiction environmental art. And I wish I'd had a chance to go over and talk to him now that I'm thinking about it. And I didn't make it over there. And then as far as the other general vendors, you had people there selling a lot of anime and mangas. And you had um, a, I think they were um, Crimson Chain Leatherworks. They were there. They do a lot of Renaissance festivals in the area. They're like all over the place. I think there's like a couple of dozen people that work for this company all over the place um they have they had incredible work there and then you know you had a bunch of others in there as well too now taking into consideration that all these people are here to vend and to to show and to sell what they've made what they've created what they brought to these shows so when i was growing up that just didn't happen that much i think the very first convention i ever went to was a star trek convention as a little kid and that was it. And that was very small and it wasn't, you know, anything, you know, over the top or anything. And then I didn't end up actually going to another convention until um, me and two buddies of mine from high school stumbled across a small, I'm talking small, like smaller than my studio convention. And I, it was maybe like a 15 foot wide by maybe... I'm not even joking on this, maybe 20 foot long room with four or five vendors. And that was where I first picked up my very first pack of Magic the Gathering. And 
you know, I had just gotten into D&D at that time, all these other things, but it was still very scattershot. In fact, I don't even think um, Star Wars Episode One had come out yet. So it was kind of a dearth. There wasn't anything out there. Now, the reason I've told you all of this is because I've been there. I know what it's like to have this drought where you don't have any of this stuff. And unfortunately, because of everything that's happened with the pandemic and all of these other facets, we might have dodged a bullet here because so many shows have gone under. Wizard World has dramatically reduced the amount of shows they are doing. Other shows have, you know, just capped how many people will be going. Some don't give a damn and are just going through with it. And that's fine. That's their prerogative. I may not always approve with that, but they run a business and they can do that. I just don't attend. And there are some that I don't understand how they're capable of doing that. And so moving forward with this, I think to myself, what is going to happen whenever people either a get burned out by the incredible amount of shows that are out there? And also what happens whenever enough of these shows end up going away for whatever reason? How do we recover from that? And when I say we, I mean the people that enjoy this stuff from the casual fan that goes, I used to own a Super Nintendo. I like Superman. I've seen the He-Man movie on a bad video rental day. Or I kind of remember this show about giant robots. I don't remember if it was Robotech or if it was Transformers. Or, yeah, I kind of like to collect Legos. You're t those are casual people, which are more than welcome in my world to any of these shows because that's how they become super fans. To the people that will sit there and write dissertations on their blogs about why this person or this person is so-and-so or what's going on with this fandom or people that write fan fiction or people that self-publish like I do. Whatever it is, the whole spectrum, the whole damn spectrum is wonderful. And when I see that shows are going through the problems they are now, all I can think to myself is, what next? Because, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, what really is going to happen next? There's so much promise out there. There's so much ahead of us that is yet to be tapped. There's so much possibility. But I think that a lot of what could go wrong can fall in these different avenues. Number one, I don't agree with the fact that costs keep going up. Right now, pop culture, unfortunately has given rise to things like vintage stock and other stuff like that. And I say, unfortunately, as nothing against a vintage stock or any of these reseller places, I'm glad they can make a business model out of it. I'm glad that there are small mom and pop stores that can do that. My favorite one is Rockin' Sports in Warrensburg, the best store you can go to to find some retro stuff, especially games. It's in Warrensburg. Don't forget about that and go there. And when you have that happening, that's a wonderful thing, right? But what I wonder is this, because of the proliferation of that, because of the fact that you can find things like Star Wars, Star Trek, Pokemon everywhere, you turn around, it's practically there. The fact that somebody like a gamer like Ninja is a household name is something I never could have imagined. I mean, they're, being famous for like getting the top score in Donkey Kong meant you were known by the few people that played Donkey Kong that hardcore. 
I don't even remember his name, but I know he has a mullet, a beard, and a mustache, and I've seen him one person one time, and I think he was kind of a jerk. I don't know that. Don't quote me directly, but that's what I heard. And that's about it. I don't, I don't even know what his name is. Okay? So, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just, I don't know that. But for some reason, a lot of people know who Ninja is, and you'll see his face plastered on the side of a Red Bull display at Walmart. So things have definitely changed. And what I wonder is with shows like this one who had to kind of get through this and hopefully come out on the other side with a brand new show in 2022, what is it going to look like moving forward? What have we learned from this? That as big and as powerful and as mighty as the aspect of pop culture events of any kind, as amazing as things like you know, the current crop of movies that are coming out based on comic books and graphic novels and anime and old properties from the 80s are, that can all go away. It's happened before. If there's any one IP out there that shows that, it's Star Trek. And Star Wars has gone through that as well, too. In fact, I think it's kind of going through a little bit of a slump with the exception of the fact of the excellence of The Mandalorian. But fan, you know, fandom is made up of fans. Fans can be very fickle people. And if things are made too difficult, too expensive, or just stray too far from what they're happy with, for better or for worse, it can have some long-lasting repercussions, unfortunately. But sometimes it's a necessity. I worry that a lot of people that don't agree with what's happening right now with shows will bow out. But there are plenty of people... I know this because I spoke to a lot of people this weekend and I've spoken to them over the last couple of years, you know, and I say kids, but definitely kids that are like 18, 19, 20, getting out of college, doing whatever that are hungry to do this. They have comic book ideas. They have animation ideas. They have character designs. They have toy designs, board game designs, role playing game designs. They want to be published. They will find a way to get out there even if it's paying for higher price tables because they want to be able to do what a lot of us might not have ever gotten to do now i don't know where their dreams came from i don't know what inspired them to do these things but i remember being that starry-eyed i remember having that same sort of drive and fuel in me and i still do to some degree and in fact i realized that a lot of my own depression and my own cynicism was born from the fact that i simply hadn't done a show in quite a long time. And it was really crazy when you're not around creative people. And I am a fairly introverted person, regardless of what people have said from having watched my TikToks. I am a very introverted person. I rarely leave my studio. I purposefully quit my day jobs so that that way I could, you know, shear out an existence as a freelancer and do what I do now. I'm very lucky to do what I do now. And I just... It took that one step, which was loaded with bravery and 90% fear to do this, but I'm here now and I'll be here for as long as I can. And in that, I realized that isolation can do some crazy things to you because as much as I love doing what I do until I'm around somebody else, like I had a very spirited conversation with one gentleman at the show today who we were talking about these really cool toys that he had that I had been looking for. And they're based on Egyptian characters. They're sort of chibi-like designs. They're beautiful. Um, the, uh, the thumbnail for this particular episode is of them. 
and it just led into talking about other things. By the time I was done, I was talking about my buddy Terry Taylor's uh, toy uh, toy store, thirteen thirteen Mockingbird Lane, over in Lawrence, and how he and then his wife Liz had been featured on a toy store near you, which is produced by Brian Volks Weiss, who is also the brainchild and producer of a lot of shows like uh, the Movies That Made Us and the Toys That Made Us, and that very same guy is also heralding a renaissance in the fact that his company, Nacelle, uh, Nacelle, not Nacelle, I don't know where that came from. It was like the South came out of me right there. But Nacelle has purchased three IPs that are pretty close to my own heart. Um, Lords of Power, Roboforce, and uh, Silverhawks. As far as I know, that's what I'm understanding. And that's pretty freaking amazing that these things, these IPs that had just been dormant for a long time, I now have an opportunity to come back under new guidance, under new situation, be rebirthed and reintroduced into new generations. That doesn't come without its own problems. And I'm going to use a comparative metaphor here to say that the exact same thing that went on with She-Ra, and I know this because I belong to a lot of Masters of the Universe forums and groups, the new She-Ra Netflix show that has already ended is phenomenal. If you like a fresh breath brought to something that is retro, watch it. It is extremely LGBT friendly, and there is nothing wrong with that. It's extremely um, liberal to a certain degree. But it's also a damn good story. The animation is phenomenal. Can it be a little bit out of my own reach as far as like how I like narratives driven and stuff? Of course, but it wasn't made for me. I just happen to enjoy the show. It doesn't erase the wonderful stuff that happened with Filmation years ago, which is a little hard for me to watch now because, you know, it was a kid's show back then, even more so than this one is. And I think that's the same sort of thing that happens with what's happening with shows. We have people that don't want stuff to change. And I really mean that. I don't even mean that in a bad way toward them. It's just cynicism, I believe, is a natural constant that happens. And this is especially true of a lot of people here in America, where the older you get, the more either paranoid or negative or just i don't know i've watched my own parents go through this and i've i've been really careful to never absorb or expel that same sort of negativity about anything and i've done it plenty of times but then i've had to recount my thoughts and go wait a minute why why am i being this way about it It doesn't make any sense none right like i bring up the the uh the intellectual property RoboForce, okay? It's a, it's a fairly obscure one by a lot of measures. Do do an eBay search or a Google search and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's these wonderfully designed um, love letters of robot designs that go back, they herald to the 1950s and they're just amazing. And the creator found a way to bring it back through a modern system of toy making that was very much, you know, founded on the principle of like vinyl toys. It's just amazing. Uh, through the Glios action figure lines and then eventually he ended up selling that to brian books weiss um so that's a whole bunch of extra information there in case you're wondering but that is something where i could be mad that you know it got handed off to somebody else and that the original creator no longer has uh any real you know ownership in it as far as i know instead i'm really happy that maybe future generations will get a chance to see this world and maybe it'll blossom one of my personal favorites for a long time was a was an intellectual property called Starry Ors. Um, if you grew up in the 80s, you might remember a toy line called the Zoids. 
And they're like these models you could assemble and build, and some of them were mechanized, battery-driven. They had these little gold metal figurines. Well, Star Wars was kind of like its weird offshoot, half-cousin kind of thing. I fell in love with the Head Over Heels because it was very action figure based and much more limited. And I owned quite a few of them when I was younger, and now that's kind of become my holy grail of collecting. Um, but that's something that I'd love to see brought back because the the storyline was very much you know one that based around the extinction of man, um, ecological themes that were really popular in the late 80s and early 90s, just a lot of that sort of thing. And I think it's rife for something today. And that's the same sort of thing, I think, about the evolution of shows. Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of comic shows turn into something that may not be for the best. I consistently see prices rising. I see shows that thankfully are starting to do the whole, hey, apply for the show and we're going to do some jurying. You know, we're going to look at your application. We're going to see what you've done. And if you're good enough, we'll let you in, which is great. And if not, we'll put you on the wait list because we still think you're good enough. And if somebody else drops off, we'll let you know. And that's all wonderful. But let's get down to what the real nitty gritty is. I understand that a venue, especially in the bigger and the better and the bigger the show, they can demand higher prices for attendance and for the people doing these shows i was really surprised i shouldn't say i'm surprised it never fails to amaze me that there are people that don't realize that whether you're doing an outdoor street show or you're doing a convention that the tables cost money a lot of times i've been asked you know how much does a how much does a table cost and i said it depends on the show and they're like oh really I'm like, yeah, you know, like some shows are 120 bucks, some are 50, you know, some are 500. And the looks on their faces that there's a spectrum of cost like that is pretty funny to me. Not because I like to make fun of them, not because there's anything funny about it. Not really, because it's something that, you know, I think everybody has to learn. I know that the very first time I ever paid for a show and had a table, I think I paid, I think I paid 110 dollars for my four foot section of a table and you know that was fine but some of these same shows that i had gone to before are now hundreds of dollars well because i don't really do a lot of fan art which is taking other people's ips and recreating them in my own way and i really am pursuing my own book art or and trying to create my own stuff which is a hard sell sometimes you have to find those people that are like like one particular dude um, that was at the show, and I quote, he said, holy shit, this stuff is fire, which I took as one of the greatest compliments I've ever heard in a while of my art. And he didn't care. He fell in love with this one particular piece of mine. Um, it's, it's titled You Came Back, and it has a silhouette of a small female character on a rock overlooking some water with a robot in the distance with the sun setting behind him. And that is a scene from my book, Ardor, that will be coming out eventually uh, this next year. That is so much more rewarding than all the money I'll ever get for doing fan art. At least emotionally, you know? Don't get me wrong. Still got to pay the bills. Still got to do stuff like that. And I'm not above doing fan art commissions or anything. I love them. I got a few of them this, this very show. And I'm going to do them and have just as much pride and care and craft and quality in what I give out. But the shows, because of that, I wish there was more emphasis 
from the shows, if you're going to be a comic show, be a comic show. If you're going to be the kind of show that inter- that introduces and brings along a lot of people whose autographs are $100, $200, photo ops are $100, $200, then just be upfront and honest that that's what you want out of that. And don't necessarily open up Artist Alley for as many people. Just own what you are. I would much rather do a slew of smaller shows where I know that I'm going to meet people that are truly looking for new stories or things that will engage them. And that's something I absolutely get out of NakaCon. It's unique in being an anime convention that, with the exception of one year, I have done almost solidly now for almost a decade, if not more, I honestly think. And also the fact that there was no show last year. And so when, you know, that's the sort of stuff that I look for and I wish would be more prolific. Now, this could just sound like the rantings of somebody who's been in the, you know, on the uh, inside of this for a little bit too long. I don't mean it to. I simply wish that, and this is my own wish. There, there's no, there's nothing more behind this than really some emotional uh, grasping. As I said earlier, we do live in a crazy time where a lot of things can be popular and there, and fandoms can cross over and come back and forth. And sometimes I believe that a lot of these shows are forgetting that. They forget that um, for what it's worth with the advent of things like Etsy, Twitch, YouTube, and all these other avenues, TikTok being my big one, that showcase things, that can help you sell, that can drive sales. This is the first show I've had where thanks to TikTok, I made sales. And understand, it was that I was at a show and it was part of the performance and it was enough that it got people to my table to buy stuff. But that doesn't mean I can't drive them to my Etsy store. It doesn't mean that I can't do it on my own. And I wish more shows would be cognizant of that factor. The vendors, the artists, Anybody you have come to your show doesn't really need the show in this day and age to make it. It's cool. It's vibrant. It's wonderful. And it's a hell of a lot of fun. I love doing shows. I don't love stepping into a show and being hundreds of dollars in debt. I will gladly pay that to support a show that supports me, that helps me out, that treats me right. And I'm not a number that the person in charge may know my name, may remember my, you know, small legacy there at the show, how many shows I've done, who I am, that sort of thing. I appreciate that. I think anyone would. But the moment that you start doing, and this is something I found a huge fault with, and I have no problem saying this, with the wizard shows, the moment you become a number, the moment you become just an asset that gets in there and you're sequestered into these long rows that never end, that look like farming fields of people and creative talents that really should be much more featured. I mean, I think there's just an issue with these mega shows. And that's just my own personal take on that. Because I've been to enough smaller shows that maybe you make less money, but I would almost rather do those shows because I've, you know, for my own worth, I've never been to a bigger show and made gangbusters and been like, yeah, this was the greatest show I ever did. And all that, because there's always somebody that, there's always going to be a good number of people that just don't like your stuff unless you're, you know, applying yourself to the lowest common denominator. Like if I did nothing but Super Mario Brothers art, there's a certain type of fanboy that likes that. If I always drew the Wolverine or whatever. And I did do that for a few years. And I made okay money 
and I wasn't even that great at what I was doing. My heart wasn't in it. The, the artwork just wasn't up to snuff. But I'm much happier doing what I do now. And with Nakacon, this was definitely a show that, hey, in the end, I end up feeling like, like it gives me the ability to believe in myself again. That what I'm doing isn't a crazy-ass dream. That I can make it. And when that sort of energy is in me, and I can talk to people at a show that come to the show, that want to have fun, they want to forget about a lot of the things happening in the world. And for three really cool days, you can be who you want, dress up, talk to people, buy things, just like I did, and have fun. Of course there's post-con blues. Of course, there's, oh, man, I wish it was still going on. But then that takes away from the special moment, right? And I think when all is done and said, and this ran through my head, God forbid that this would really be the case, but if for some crazy reason this was the last show for Nakacon, I'm glad it was a good one. It wasn't big. And it wasn't the wildest one. But it was a good one. And it was worth it to see the, the faces, the smiles behind the masks as they played across their eyes. You know, I remember a quote one time. I don't remember wh who said it, but it was something about the way that um, the beguiling thing about Clint Eastwood's characters were that they smiled with their eyes, even as he grimaced with his face. And the masks that we wear hide a lot about our emotions. But you can see the glint, the glimmer in their eye, the, the laughter as they squint up, you know, and you hear the laughter. And being able to talk to a few kids today that told me about their love of animation, their love of uh, books, Star Wars, from different angles and viewpoints that I never even imagined. You know, talking about retro games. You know, and like, oh, man, I had a great conversation today with somebody about uh, Defender and Zaxxon, which are two of my big jams. And just talking about, you know, they, they'd never seen the original arcade cabinets for some of these things. And just that sort of thing, that connection across generations in in hobbies and interests, you know, are just wonderful. And it's, it's something I think that for myself, if it weren't for shows like Nakacon, that would have been lost in me a long time ago. And I find them in other shows that I do as well, too. FanCon, Free State, a lot of those, you know, they give me an opportunity to breathe. They give me an opportunity to remember who I am and not be apologetic for it. There were more than a few years that I was not really out with who I was as a person that I wasn't really comfortable with being this geek, this dork. And that, you know, I'll go, you know, real deep with, you know, some obscure stuff on people if somebody lets me. And, uh, but I love hearing that stuff right back from fans too. I learned a lot about some new animes and I'm like, I gotta check that out. And I can't remember. There's a list over here that I've got of a few of my wrote down. And, um, you know, that's what it's all about. So, in a pinch, let's all hope that Nakacon comes back next year. And if you've not been to Nakacon, it's a good show. It's a great show. It's a lot of fun. 
I don't know if it'll be back. I don't know if it'll be back at that venue. Not because of anything in particular. It's just, hey, we all thought 2020 was going to happen, and it didn't. So, you know, it's up in the air with what's going to happen in 2022. But I'd like to think it's going to be back. I'd like to think that things will be better. And, uh, you know, and that things will change for the better. Right? Ah. It's going to be so nerve-wracking waiting until then. For anyone listening to this that was out at NakaCon and commented and liked and spoke to me via TikTok, thank you. That was awesome. I jumped 71 followers in three days. That, pardon my French, is fucking amazing. And you guys commented and talked and met me at the show and bought stuff. All of you made it for me, man. Like, that is freaking great. And to the staff at NakaCon that came up and thanked me for, like, constantly promoting the show, hey, I, that that's my pleasure. Like, I freaking love that show. And I do want to – this, this is probably stepping out of my bound a little bit here. But there's a wonderful lady named Beth who I continually over years – she was NakaCon for me. I'm going to say that because she's a dear friend of mine, and I'm going to say that because it's the goddamn truth. And it was the one down thing that happened to me this year was not seeing her presence there because she was the one that managed a lot of the creative, the vendor room, that sort of thing. And uh, being able to know that she had our back and was there just to have a friendly hello and check on us, it it was just as empty of a feeling as seeing less people at the show. But where I could understand the cap on the other one, the absence just left me a little bit bittersweet. You know, I still keep in touch with her and she's a very, very cool person. And, uh, but yeah, it's amazing how much the shows can definitely be the product of the people that put it on. We all know that, but it's not until that absence is felt that it really hits you. So with that, I'm going to make myself absent and end this show because I went over 40 minutes, which I can't freaking believe. I've been talking my full head off for days. I've done more video, more audio, and more production in three days than I thought I'd ever do. I was mixing on my phone, editing, doing all these things. It was crazy. And this doesn't even count for all the off-media conversations I had with other professionals and people that were there at the show and you name it. I, I just... I'm surprised my voice hasn't gone out, but I've been drinking water and everything. I'm going to take a quick drink right now. My throat is a little sore. Thank you so much for listening. I am Mario the Artisan Rogue. This was Radio 74. I will catch you in the next episode.